4: Rich wanted more recognition from me. I really didn't give a fuck anymore. I felt I was on an island by myself. So I named Rich president. I'm like, you run it. Go ahead, do what you got to do. I was just like, I truly hated it.
2: Welcome to Idea Generation's All Angles, a podcast about culture's most influential brands and the teams that built them. an entrepreneur, creative, or anyone interested in harnessing the power of collaboration, join me, Noah Callahan-Bever. Each week as we dissect the most dynamic companies in culture, because the only way to truly understand success is to look at it from all angles. Idea Generations All Angles is a Will Packer Media podcast. Welcome back for part two of our two part Lab Records story. After starting with a novelty act in Tongue Twister and having been through the industry ringer, Lab Records founders Steve Rifkin and Rich Isaacson had finally gained some footing with their breakthrough release, Wu Tang Clan's debut long player, Enter the 36 Chambers. With that success under their belt, Lab were officially players in the game, but neither the staff nor the artist had any idea just how big the label was about to become, or how quickly it would all unravel. But before life would come at them fast, the Loud Gang were still reveling in Wu-Tang Clan's sudden stardom. This is Rich Isaacson,
5: co-founder of Loud Records. I think we did 30 something thousand the first week, which was a massive number in those days, over the counter. Then it just kept every week another 25, another
4: 30. We hit 50,000 I think in 10 days.
5: It wasn't like now when a hip hop record would come out, do a huge first week, and then the second week would decline 60% or 70%. Wu-Tang just was solid for like a year. Just kept going and going and it became this underground massive phenomenon and brought New York hip hop back. The pendulum had swung from New York to L.A., and Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, and there was a whole West Coast movement dominating hip-hop. So Wu-Tang was really completely raw, completely New York, and resonated, not just in New York, surprisingly, resonated in the South, but in the West Coast. As the Wu-Tang phenomenon broke nationally, Matty C.,
2: still a writer in New York City at The Source magazine, remained close with his college buddy Scott Free, Loud's first A&R, and wu tangs inside man at the label. Together, the two started plotting on signing Loud's next act, a teenage duo from Queensbridge known as Mob Deep. Just like Wu-Tang, the duo had debuted on another label, missed the mark creatively, and flopped commercially. But Matt and Scott had been tracking them for years and knew where things had gone wrong.
6: There was a lot of excitement about the source, almost more so
2: than record labels. This is Maddie C, writer at The Source Magazine and eventual director of a
6: at Loud. And I think there were a lot of artists up and coming, perspective, unsigned, who felt like The Source had people up there who understood hip hop more than a lot of the record labels did. Demos were just getting mailed in because of the fact that the audience understood that we got it and that we might be able to, to to provide some sort of access.
7: Matt did an unsigned hype column that was just dedicated to like talking about MCs that were coming up.
6: This is Scott Free,
2: director of a at Loud Records.
7: Poetical prophets who later became Mob Deep were a part of that. Common Sense, who was later walked to Relativity, And then there was a guy named Biggie Smalls, who's walked to Bad Boy, amongst a few others. But all of these coming from Maddie's column, essentially. So in my mind, Matt had already been been doing
6: A&R. Scott, like, just had that passion like me to kind of listen and go through a lot of different music.
7: Matt was just playing me the Mob deep stuff, which was phenomenal at the time. Me, Matt and Stretch were bugging at how they had grown. Mob was about 16, 17 or so when they made, you know, the initial stuff. So now we saw them as kind of sounding like they were coming into their prime and finding themselves. I wanted to bring that to loud. I remember Steve being like, yo, they they sold 20,000 records on their first album. Like, this is this is how you want to start off. And uh, I was like, yeah, yeah, we gonna, we gonna make a classic record out of these uh, with these kids. Steve was definitely about the artist first. Steve knew when something had momentum
2: to move. You know what I mean? Though we may have been hesitant at first, Steve trusted his team, followed their instincts, and signed Mob Deep. After an underwhelming debut on 4th and Broadway Records, Prodigy and Havoc were looking for a situation where they could have complete creative control of their music. Luckily for the duo, Steve didn't believe in saying no. What
8: made us want to go to Loud was the things that they was offering to us. You know, they said, look, we feeling y'all. They appreciated our music.
2: This is Havoc, producer, rapper, and one half of Mob Deep.
8: And they said if we was to sign to that label, that creatively we would have the reins to do whatever we wanted to do. They wouldn't bother us. They would just let us do us. And that was attractive to us. You know what I mean? A label saying, yo, we're gonna let y'all do what y'all do. We're not gonna bother y'all. We give y'all all the creative control. That was very attractive to me and
6: Prodigy. At that time, creative control was the big issue, and especially in hip hop. The idea that these bigger rap records, in order to have a budget, we're gonna have executives coming in, puppeteering aspects of how these records are made. Just not just not happening, you know? There was a whole kind of counter movement against that, right, and against making records that even smelled like that, right. And the Keep It Real movement happened, right. Keep the Timbs and the Army Fatigues movement. Like the, this, this kind of dichotomy that's always been there in rap, right, between the grimy side and the shiny side.
8: Scott, Free, and Maddie C, they was like big brothers to us, guiding us through this second album. Without them, the Infamous album wouldn't have been the Infamous album because they had the constructive criticism and followed their lead, you know what I mean? They guided us.
6: The process became emulating what I saw the greats doing, you know, and I know that already have, had learned from watching Large Professor and Premiere and Epitome, you know, doing the first Juvenile Hell album, you know? And, uh, you know, my goal was really to give him the confidence. That was the most important record in Loud history.
2: Even though we got Wu-Tang, we needed a follow-up. This is Steve Rifkin, founder of Loud Records.
4: And when Havoc and Prodigy and Maddie came to the fucking office to play that album, I cried. And I knew that we had another platinum
2: record. We're not a one-trick pony. The Infamous proved that Loud was more than just a one-act wonder, and Steve was hyper-aware that the album's success was the direct result of Scott and Maddie's chemistry. In order to continue this momentum, Steve needed Maddie to join Loud
6: full-time and lead the A&R department. Scott put in his ear, yo, you, Matt, that's Matt shit. Like, you know what I mean? You gotta get Matt over here. And then both of them, you know, took me out a couple times. They tried to get me to do A&R, and I was like, yeah, I want to do A&R, but I I mostly, like, I want to fuck with these producers, all these producers, and help. You know, I felt like I had kind of helped big on his first album with a few producers, and I was excited to bring producers to artists type of thing, and then possibly help with publishing deals. So Steve hooks me up with BMG Publishing, Clyde Lieberman, and I started doing that too. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll lay in our mob deep too. If it goes well, I'll, I'll keep doing that. And obviously, as mob deep started to do real well, it was just a shoe in that that's what I was doing. And and I stopped kind of showing up at the source as much. And by, yeah, by 94, I was just loud, A&R.
2: Matty C set the tone for the A&R department with his attention to detail and steadfast commitment to honoring the artist's vision. Scott Free would take Matt's cue and push RZA and Rayquan as they crafted Loud's next release, only built for Cuban links.
7: Maddie was really ill, like, about production. So he'd go back in, do another recall add a little kick, a snare, whatever it was, like we were really anal about the quality of the sound of the music itself.
6: I think my huge advantage was being at the source and being able to see into every label and every project before and after it came out and understand what was working and what wasn't.
7: We AB'd, we compared everything, like Dr. Dre's chronic album, that was always the test, like, you know, yo, I, my shit gotta come behind Dre's in the club and you know, not miss a Step. And I'm telling Ray, I'm like, yo, man, make sure all our shit got drums in it. Fuck that. Don't let Ra hit you with the, just the loop, like whatever, whatever, because yo, man, we trying to, we trying to bang in the club. All that's cool if you just listening on your walk, man, and all, but like, yo, make sure this whole album got drums in it. You know, it kind of got back to Ra, and you know, Ra kind of felt like me and Maddie with were dissing his drum game. Okay, well, you know, it is what it is. Like, you know, I wasn't crazy about the drums on Meth album. Some of them, like, you know, Bring the Ruckus was was ill, but then you had a couple that was like,
6: uh, you know, you know. Like, listen to, to Cal, man. You can't really listen to album cuts. And if you DJ, you definitely can't play them. You know what I mean? They just sound muddy.
7: So when you go to the Cuba Lynx album, I remember walking in to hear incarcerated Scarfaces. And I come in and, and Rob puts it up. And the whole time he's playing it, he's just looking me in my face. Like, he's doing that, the Rocky thing or whatever. And he's looking me in my face like, like, say something about my drums right now. I dare you, you know?
6: I feel like he was looking dead at me too. And he said that, I think Rizzo, uh made his point.
7: I was in stunned shock mode, you know? He's like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, yo, that's, that's, that's the bar, Rob, that's the bar.
6: I still feel like you know, proud to have kind of lit a fire under his ass about that because, again, it speaks for itself now.
2: The following year, Matt and Scott would add an up-and-coming producer to their a and roster, Sean C., who had just gotten a placement on Jay-Z's Reasonable Doubt, was looking for any entree into the music industry and jumped at the opportunity to help with Mobb Deep's Hell on Earth sessions.
9: What I learned from Matty C, the way that he ran the A&R department was never tell the artists what to do. If you want Large Professor to produce something for Mob D, just create the situation where Lard happens to be in the same room with them and let it be organic. Loud was run where the artists had the creative control. And we were lucky enough to get artists that really were super dope, you know, that we didn't have to guide as much, We just kind of created that environment for them in order to make the records that they did and get their vision out. There was a great morale
6: in the beginning of Loud New York. Like, everybody was kind of on board, on the same page, unified.
2: The culture of Loud was coming into focus. They were hip, brash, and ahead of the curve. And as the roster grew, so too did the staff. Stephen Rich hired Steve's brother Jonathan, an accomplished promotion executive, to run radio. Olu Kuru joined as creative director, and Charlene Thomas as project manager, among so many other talented additions to the team.
5: So I moved back to New York, start working the building, develop relationships with all the people at RCA, learn how a real record company is run. Everything from A and R administration to production to the creative services to royalties, all the unsexy, uncool things. That's what I knew I had to learn for us to be able to build a real business and take it to the next level. So I'm spending more time there. Steve's coming back and forth, and he realizes, okay, New York's where hip hop is. He has to have a present there too.
8: When it came to uh, Steve Rifkin, And Rich, they was like the coolest CEOs that you could ever have of a record company, you know what I mean? Because we was on 4th and Broadway, we never even seen the CEO of the label or or the president or anybody like that. We only dealt with the A&Rs. So to be able to hang out with the CEOs of the label and play basketball with them and hang out and chill, that was important because it created a family environment.
2: In no time, Loud's offices in LA and New York were
5: the place to be. You never knew what you might hear or who you might see. It just became like the hangout. We were outside of Union Square, where NYU is, right by the subway. It's all young people who love hip hop. And in those days, as I said, it was a real community. So at any given time, one of the artists would just pop into the office, then some mixtape guy would show up, some pot dealer would show up, and all of a sudden, it was just a cool hang. In our office, it was complete chaos. We had strippers in the office for Ray Quantin's birthday. It was the least professional place you could possibly imagine.
9: If you were in the office at night, there'd be a lot of things going on in there that you (laughs) a lot of crazy shit going on on those couches, a lot of weed smoke, which seemed like it was normal, like at a record label. You walk in and, you know, Ray is back there, Old Dirty is back there. I remember being in the listening room and Dirty came in. And he was like, "Oh, y'all got new speakers. Those speakers is dope." He's like, "I need, I need some speakers like this for my, for my studio." And then LV, who ended up being my production partner later, was coming up to check me, and he was like, "Yo, I was just in the elevator with Old Dirty, and he had two speakers on his shoulders." He said he was coming out, I was going in, and he said he was singing Rick James, walking with these speakers, and security stopped him. And he was like, what you talking about? These are my speakers. These are my speakers. Like He stole the speakers out of the office.
2: Another artist that became larger than life at Loud was Big Punisher, a.k.a. Big Pun. The Bronx-born rapper was buzzing in the streets of New York, but Loud would turn him into a global superstar. But before that could happen,
9: Steve would have to sign him first. Steve would just go into business with people that he believed in their vision more than the music. He kind of prided himself in signing shit that nobody else would sign. You know what I mean? And that was kind of like what his vibe was. Like, you know, with with Pun, he wanted to do business with Fat Joe because nobody wanted to go in business with Joe. So he wanted to do that because of that vibe.
4: I must have gotten 10 calls saying, don't do business with Joe. He's a killer, an extortionist, this, that, so and so and so on. Right? So... I meet Joe over the phone. I said, I'm going to LA on a Thursday to see my kids. I'll be back Monday. Let's meet Tuesday. Joe comes to the meeting. And I fell in love with Joe the second he walked in. I said, let me talk to you. Everybody said not to do business with you. This, that, so and so on. He said, I'm a real fucking gangster. I go, I want to show everybody wrong. All we did was laugh. Pun wasn't even at the fucking meeting. I go, bring Pun, Thursday. But Joe, please be on time was, I'm flying home to be with my wife and kids.
2: But Joe wasn't the only person Steve was concerned about being on time for the meeting. Meeting say at
4: 1130. I have a $300,000 check waiting for Maddie that he hasn't picked up in six fucking weeks.
6: He'd never be in the office. He tells this story a lot about my lateness. I don't, I don't appreciate that too much as a grown man. But yeah, probably back then, uh not not quite as diseased as the artists with the lateness effect but yeah i too was not that enthusiastic to make it to morning pep talk staff meetings right i would try to explain like we worked into the wee hours of night we go to the studio we go to the club yeah i'm not gonna make it to the nine o'clock ten o'clock meeting on time so
4: i walk in see maddie in the office I'm like what are you doing here he goes don't we have a meeting with pun I'm like, you're here for this? They walk in. I said, you got a deal, who's your attorney? They all looked at me like I'm fucking on crack. Joe goes, don't bullshit me. I said, I'm not bullshit. I said, who's your attorney? Maddie says, we haven't heard music. I said, Maddie, you're here. He must be a fucking star. I said, who's your attorney? tim and the Bell. i call up tim i said he is 250.
6: we closed it there right then and there tim came to the office in all honesty it's not one of my you know detailed stories of memory the way it is to steve but what i do remember is steve like inventing this joke at that moment and never letting it go like maddie's here on time he feels like he can make that point in a short sentence I signed a pun because Maddie showed up on time. You know what I mean, and so yeah, yeah, it's cool. You know, that's I like it.
2: Punctuality aside, Steve signing pun just because Maddie made the meeting is also a testament to how much trust he had in Maddie's ear. In that moment, Steve's instinct for reading people and talent were unmatched by anything other than his confidence in his own process. With PUN on the roster, Loud was about to be the hottest label in hip hop. But the once controlled chaos that fueled their rise was rapidly becoming entirely
5: uncontrolled. We went from putting out one or two records a year, selling a couple hundred thousand a year, which is substantial to Wu-Tang selling a million copies, Raekwon selling a million copies, The Alcoholics a couple hundred thousand, Mob Deep going gold. So I don't think I caught up. I don't think my learning curve was steep enough because I was spending my time doing crazy things. Like I'm actually dealing with the production people and making sure that the record got delivered on time and making sure that the publicist has photos of the photo shoot or whatever so I, I was doing such dumb minute things and learning that I wasn't paying enough attention to really realizing how big our business was
9: becoming it was my 1st AR job so I had nothing to compare it to you know just every night eating somewhere I never spent my own money I like lived on my expense account and studio sessions, like just booking it, booking it, booking it, until later, not really realizing like, this isn't really what you're supposed to be doing. Like you should be paying attention to the money. Like, oh, we book it. And no, I would we'll do two blockouts at the same time. And we'll have a room where you can go in here and then you can come in here. And back then it wasn't, you know, there were no home studios. So everything was expensive. Wu-Tang's first video, they were the first million dollar video too. That I feel like was warranted though, because it was, it was Wu-Tang Clan.
5: The second Wu-Tang album, you know, that was when we truly went to the next level.
4: The second Wu-Tang album was a game changer.
5: That was the beginning of the end actually for us. We were young guys who had this cool company of all young, hungry kids who never had a job anywhere, let alone in music. And we're just renegades and making it up as we go along. And we're like pinching ourselves on a weekly basis going, can you believe this is happening kind of thing. But after a certain period of time, you're like, okay, I want to make some money. You know, we wanted to make money. Bands wanted to make money. The staff wanted to make money at the beginning. They're like, yeah, it's cool if you pay me $300 a week, but we're selling millions of records. You guys are probably making millions. We want to get paid. Of course, we weren't, but that was the impression. It never lost the culture and the community of the company, but it started becoming okay, everybody wants to make money. When Wu Tang came out with the second album, we became a joint venture. We got kind of cocky. Wu Tang Forever sold over 600,000 units in its first week
2: and catapulted Loud into another stratosphere. Naturally, Steve decided it was time for him and his partners to get paid. So he started renegotiating their deal directly with Strauss Zelnick, the chairman of RCA's parent company, BMG. Now
4: we're renegotiating every 10 minutes. So Strauss calls me, who is the chairman of BMG, and says, meet me at the Regency Hotel Thursday at nine o'clock. I drive there the day before on that Wednesday to see who's there. And Summer Redstone's there, Rupert Murdoch's there.
2: Yes, that Rupert Murdoch, media mogul and chairman and CEO of Fox.
4: This motherfucker is going to try and embarrass me. I come in in a pair of um, blue cargo shorts, a Michael Jordan North Carolina tank top with a t-shirt underneath, and Strauss is in a suit. At that time, we're doing the Thursday night lineup on Fox, marketing-wise, which was Martin and Latifah's show, New York Undercover. Strauss says, I can't go any further. And we're sitting across from each other. I said, Strauss... The deal's up in four months. I've been broke this long. I could wait another four months. And if you know the deal, everything comes with me anyway. And I slammed the table. Rupert Murdoch comes to the table. This, this is why I got rid of you. Strauss was president of Fox. He goes, when you see somebody with this type of passion, you're arguing over money. I have no idea who this guy is. I introduced myself. I said, I'm very close with your son, James. And as a matter of fact, I do a lot of work for you. I do all the marketing for your Thursday night lineup. And I leave and I'm actually, I'm at peace with myself. Like if he comes, great. If not, we'll get a huge fucking deal in November. But I know Rich and my brother, they want the money. I wanted the money too, but I was truly at peace with myself. So instead of going to the office, I walked to my house. So Grumman calls and I'm not picking up the phone. And he goes, whenever you get this, I got great news and better news. So I call him and he goes, Murdoch called me, you really slammed the table. So I tell him the story. I'm like, so what's the great news? You're getting what you want from Strauss. I go, what's the better news? He goes, Rupert Murdoch called me and they're gonna give you 50,000 a month from the 15,000 a month they were giving you. And I was like, wow.
2: And just like that, in a basketball jersey and cargo shorts, Steve had manifested another new deal, transcending from music industry maverick into full-fledged power broker.
5: Our marketing business was exploding because every time we had a hit, everybody wanted to be in business with us on the marketing side because they're like, wow, how do these guys do it? How do they have a hit after hit and they're not on the radio and they're doing all this underground marketing? We want the secret sauce and they hire us. And we started doing marketing for corporations. We started doing marketing for Nike, for Miramax Films, for Tommy Hilfiger. Then we got a, a first look deal with Miramax Films and we had a film company. So we're just exploding. So it's becoming this big business. And then what happens? Egos. Steve's becoming this celebrity. You know, he's becoming this big name in hip-hop. I'm kind of trying to keep the fort together. Jonathan, our other partner, Steve's brother, is trying to keep the radio situation together and the marketing company together. We're hiring new people because we realize we we have to do all the things that we're trying to do. We need to professionalize it, yet we can't lose what got us here. So there became this tension. Me and Steve started fighting all the time because I was kind of like being the grown-up and trying to be responsible. And now we're getting real money from our partners. We have a real overhead, we have a big roster, and I'm trying to honor that and run it like a business. And Steve's kind of like going, you know, you're making this like an accounting firm. This is a record company. And I'm like, yeah, it's not exactly an accounting firm, but you know, we have to keep it together. And you could tell there were factions within the company. There were Rich people, and then there were Steve people. And everybody kind of respected each other, but tension started to evolve. Tension between us and attention within the staff.
2: Although Rich and Steve tried to keep their rift discreet, Eventually, even the rank-and-file employees, like Sean C., noticed the vibe shift.
9: To be honest, during that period of time, I didn't see Steve a lot. I saw Rich more. I realized there was something there and there was something going on with Steve. I didn't know to the extent until later. To my detriment and also to my credit, I was just the music guy, you know what I'm saying? I was more focused on like, all right, how am I gonna get to that press record? So I was aware of it. I remember Steve coming in the office and saying alcoholics better sell 4 million records or else everyone's fired. And we we're like, what? I had stopped seeing him for a while. And when I saw him, he would say shit like that and then leave like Yo,
5: he's fucking just on one he's wild. we started getting so big and so successful and a little full of ourselves and a little bit too ambitious we were hitting our numbers and they kept saying yes to anything we asked for at that point then we started doing crazy stuff like let's start a rock label let's do a joint venture with violator let's do a joint venture with pmp and all of a sudden we have overhead deals with this guy and overhead deals with that guy and signing artists for $750,000, when we started out signing artists for $10,000. And you know, at this time, hip hop is just exploding. All the major labels have their own hip hop departments. Like when we started, it was a novelty. Now everybody's in it. Death Row Records is its own phenomenon on the West Coast. Puffy's label just set the standard for, you know, unprecedented hits one after another. Def Jam starts getting hot, basically off of the back of Method Man. Then Atlantic Records is going on a roll. Like everybody's getting in the game. It's becoming super competitive. So everything that we started doing was underground and now it's the hip hop industry. The music industry was catching up to Loud. Hip hop was no longer a niche market
2: and every major label had started their own department. The competition was tougher and Loud was spending like crazy to keep up. To make matters worse, they were missing out on signing some major artists
6: as well. When we opened that 841 Broadway, it was Dame and Jay coming to see me. We had Jay's D signed for a 12-inch. Record was called Reach the Top. And we recorded it, Marvin Gaye's sample though. So when we tried to clear the sample, we ran into some issues. And then Dame came up a couple times and got in the room with Rich, and that didn't go so well. <laughs> Rich wasn't feeling Dame so much. And I'm like, oh, man. The biggest fish that got away is Eminem. Shane Mooney, who was our West Coast AR, came in the, in the listening room and loud and played me the Eminem song about locking his girl in the trunk. And I was like, nah, nah, bro. Shit out of here. Let's play something else. That's
9: it. And I wasn't feeling it. I wanted to try to sign Kanye. Hip hop had brought Kanye to me and he gave me his demo like he did everyone else. And I was like, he's super dope. This, this label's probably not gonna be here. I knew that was happening. With these missed opportunities and the labels continued overspending,
2: Lab reached a breaking point in their deal with RCA and BMG. Pretty soon, both parties started
5: looking for a way out. We started spending a million dollars every time we rolled out a record. You know, we wanted to compete with Bad Boy and Def Jam and you know you had to because the artists now are demanding, you know, we spent a million dollars on a Mob Deep video. How stupid is that?
8: Looking back on it, if I had a chance to do it again, maybe I wouldn't spend that much on a video and I would pull the resources somewhere else. At the time, you know, our competitors was shining bright,
5: you know what I mean? We didn't want Havoc and Prodigy to come in our office and say, hey. Bad boys doing this, how come you guys are trying to do a $100,000 video? You wanted to be
8: on that level, so it could level the playing field, you know, for you against your competition, so, you know, sad but true, the spending definitely got out of control.
5: It was very difficult to say no, and then we started doing crazy things. And then at a certain point, BMG came in and said, hey guys, you gotta rein it in, and Steve, more than me, to be fair, was kind of like, fuck them. We're building this amazing brand. They, they don't believe in us.
4: Strauss sends Pete Jones. This guy who had, who, we had a report to now say, we need more profits out of you. And I'm like, nah, fuck that. Like, I'm just building. I don't give a shit about the bottom line. And I said, I think Rich started choking on his sushi. And he goes, well, if that, that's the case, you know, then maybe we should part ways. I said, Okay. So we literally become a
5: free agent. And then finally, we had a buy-sell come up in our contract. Buy-sell is basically a mechanism to get them to a place where they're buying us out of our share of ownership. And of course, we're up for that because we know if we're successful, we're gonna get rich. We had what was called a shotgun buy-sell, which means the party that initiated said, okay, I wanna buy, the seller, then says, okay, if you want to buy, this is the price. And if the buyer thinks the price is too high, the seller then has to buy the buyer out for the price that they state. So it's really like a game of chicken. BMG said, okay, we're, we're out. We, we want to exercise the buy-sell. Now it's us to say, okay, the price is 50 million. So if we say 50 million and they think it's too high, we're obligated to buy them out for 50 million. And if we can't come up with it, they get the company. So basically, they came up and said, We won out. We were in debt to them at the time. We were losing money. We, we had all this all these unrecouped balances for our artists. You know, our overhead was too high. So um, our lawyer, Alan Grumman, just came up with a number. So he threw out a number and Strauss Elnick said, Fine, you get me that number and you can you can have the company. Alan was completely surprised that they were willing to sell. He was so disenchanted with how we were doing things. Now we have to come up with that money to buy him out. While Rich looked for ways to fund the buyout, word got out
2: overnight that Loud and BMG were parting ways. And the next morning, it was front page news.
4: The only person I thought that knew was Grumman, but I guess he told everybody. That night was Clive Davis's pre-dinner for the Grammys. I felt like I was puffed. Like all of a sudden every fucking photographer, like I don't know who set what up or whatever, but it was like everybody knew we were free agents. Like the next day in the New York Post said Loud is free. We meet with Grumman in the morning, Rich flies back, I stay out here and I and we start taking meetings.
5: I'm freaking the fuck out. Steven was like, great. And I'm like, you're out of your fucking mind. Who's gonna buy us for that amount of money? Then what are we gonna get? So the clock's ticking. We meet with everybody because, you know, everybody wanted to be in business with us. We met with Jimmy Iovine. We met with Tom Wally at Warner Brothers. We met with every label head. Then they'd say, great, this is amazing. And then they'd say, you know, get our CFO the numbers. Send him the numbers. No one's calling us back. All, all of a sudden, there's, there's like a couple of weeks left before this moment we're supposed to come up with the money. Our rabbi, Ron Urban from RCA, is now at... Sony, he's like a COO at Sony Corporate. And Sony had just made the biggest blunder of all time. They sold Def Jam to Polygram. They let Def Jam go. Right after they let Def Jam go, Warren G pops. Def Jam blows up. They went on a run and now Sony looks like idiots. They lost their hip hop label and Sony owned Relativity Records and Red Distribution at the time. and. Relativity wasn't doing so well. They wanted to make a change. So Ron Urban oversaw Relativity and Red on behalf of Sony. Steve meets with them and Ron said, I got a plan. Brings it to Tommy Matola and Mel Ilberman at Sony. And our lawyer had a great relationship with Tommy. And magically, <laughs> with, with, you know, with literally like, you know, it was like a...
1: This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business
7: owner or IT manager,
5: comes to the table and says, we're going to buy.
2: The Sony deal saved Loud, but it also changed the identity of the company. Instead of being a boutique label run by a bunch of friends, they were now a corporate entity with an office full of new employees, new policies, and new processes. As a result, Steve made himself unavailable, and the rift between him and Rich grew deeper.
5: On one level, I'm ecstatic because Now we're with Sony, they were like the New York Yankees of the music business, the most successful, best run, sexiest company. We got raises, we got the biggest check we ever got in our lives as an advance, and now we have relativity. But I'm also like, oh my God, I'm fucked because Steve is never gonna learn his lesson. He's actually getting rewarded for his bad behavior because now the lesson for us Overplaying our hand with BMG was we got a bigger company, raises and a big check. I'm in awe that Steve and we pulled off this coup at the last minute. We had created such a name for ourselves that we were still able to get, you know, a, a great deal. But at the same time, I was worried that now we're not going to ever get on the same page because I know in my heart this, this should never have happened this way. And Steve's going, yeah, fuck it. This is what it, how it works. Like, we gotta get people who really believe in us and let us do our thing. So that tension didn't go away. I, I was now the president, you know, he wanted to empower me and he wanted to appease me and he wanted to reward me.
4: Rich wanted more recognition from me. I really didn't give a fuck anymore. I felt I was on an island by myself. So I named Rich president. I'm like, you running? Go ahead, do what you gotta do. I was just like, I truly hated
5: it. I remember walking into the relativity office and they had their own creative department, their own finance department, their own royalty department, their own business affairs department, their own sales team, national promotion. you know, I'm still a kid in my head. And then we had our staff. So there were, you know, probably over 100 people plus the joint ventures and whatever. And now I'm the president and I'm like oh, holy shit.
4: I think we went from a staff of like 30 people to like 200 people they weren't our people they were like real workers like they had like you know they took it as a, a real job we took it as a real job but it was like we would stay in the office at 11 o'clock at night we would shoot dice we would smoke weed we would drink eat go you know go to this go to that you know like when the bell rang they were out and i was like we're fucked. the shoe look great but it doesn't fit right i started having panic attacks anxiety attacks and it was was just the worst experience of my life.
5: Steve was basically in LA at the time, and he never wanted to deal with any of that kind of stuff. I remember him coming into the office, and he was like, who are all these fucking people? Like, what do they all do? You know, like, this is crazy. And I'm trying to explain to him, like, now we're a full service label. This is what we signed up for. We have all these different departments. That was not the fun, sexy part of the music business, but that became my, you know, Responsibility. We became this big business. Doing my job was focused on how do we deliver our P and L and how do we make our business plan. And Steve hated the idea of that, and I hated that he hated the idea of that. And I understood why he hated it, but it's like you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't get the big check, have the big staff, have this big roster, and then just be like, "Well, fuck you guys." Uh, That's the bullshit part of the business that I hate. So that was ultimately the demise, because we, you can't be this boutique cool label and then have 100 artists. I think we were both aware that we were losing the sauce and we weren't emotionally evolved enough to figure out how to get on the same page and fix it. I was resenting that I felt like I was abandoned trying to keep this thing going on my own in a way, and Steve resented that it was, you know, monolith, even though he was clearly a big part of creating the monolith. We always loved each other and we were always friends, but I think we both kind of resented each other.
4: I decide during that time, I'm moving to Hawaii and I have enough money and I'm going to send Tommy back my portion of the money. And I write Tommy a letter. I didn't do emails and I was quitting. I didn't tell Rich, I didn't tell anybody. And I feel like 40 pounds lighter. like, This is just off my head, like,
2: I'm good, we're going to move here. While Steve was in Hawaii, one of Loud's most successful young artists, Big Pun, was on the verge of dropping his highly anticipated sophomore album, Yeah Baby. And Sean C. was working diligently with Pun to get that record across the goal line.
9: We have basically finished the album... And we were going to do, like, three more street songs. It had more sing-songy records. And so I was like, we should make a little bit more, you know, a couple more street records. And we were working on getting those done. And I remember being in an AR meeting and them asking, when do you think you will turn the album in? I had just left Punt actually. And I saw how bad his health was. He could barely breathe. And it was just bad. It was the worst that I had seen him. I literally said in the A&R meeting, like, I can't with a clear conscience, like, ask this man to record new songs. Not like there was pressure from the label to do it. They just were asking me when was the album gonna be done and when was I turning it in. And I said, we had these new songs that we're, we're working on, but I can't with like, like, honestly, ask this guy, like, when are you gonna record the song? Like, he's dying, he can barely breathe. And I was on my way to the airport and he called me. It was sometimes hard to understand what he was saying because of his breathing. He asked me where I was going. I said, I'm going to LA. I couldn't understand him and then the phone hung up and I was like, oh, I'll I'll hit him when I get to LA.
4: Nobody knows I'm in Hawaii. Rich doesn't know where I am. Nobody does, only my mother. And I see two big Samoans come running up to the court. Mr. Rifkin, Mr. Rifkin, you have an emergency in the mainland and it's Rich on the phone.
9: I'm thinking somebody died. Well, somebody did die. When I left in New York, he was alive. When I got off the plane, he was dead.
2: Pun's death sent shockwaves throughout Loud. In an instant, one of the label's most promising young stars was No More. On top of that, the label's spending had gotten out of control. Loud had sold tens of millions of records, but had no profit to show
5: for it. And now, Sony was putting the screws to Rich to find out what happened. We started losing money. We started getting out of control with the marketing and the signings and I remember that the guy who really was like the COO of Sony that really ran the day-to-day of the global companies this guy Mel Ilberman I had a really good relationship with Mel and he'd take me out for lunch and be like I don't understand I never saw anything like this you guys no matter what you put out sells a hundred thousand units that's amazing your brand and how you do it but you got to control the spending me and Steve were never on the same page on that I think they just lost faith in us running a business and our, you know, business started to suffer. They exercised their controls and said, You can't do certain things now without us signing off. And then that led to another confrontation and then they finally said, We gotta make a change here, guys. And then they, they bought us out, but it wasn't under the terms that were what we were hoping for and we really didn't have much choice. We had a lunch with them and they basically told us this was what's happening. I think Steve he was really depressed after that. He realized like, wow, we fucked this up, both of us, not just Steve. So we made some arrangement where I would kind of gradually reduce the staff and I felt I needed to do it myself. So I was literally firing people that were like family to me on a monthly, weekly basis till we got to a certain point And then that was it.
4: weren't moving as a unit anymore. Rich was getting beat up by quarterly numbers, these numbers, that numbers. I didn't want to hear it and I didn't want to deal with it. I already had a wall around me. Like I had no emotion. I was almost relieved. I think it was the first day I didn't have a panic attack in two years. I didn't have a fight with Rich that day. Like, I mean, me and Rich are brothers. We literally, we've known each other since we're seven years old. So I was relieved
5: took a while for me to realize the method to the madness that Steve had, you know, the collection of people, and then going, okay, Steve's collected all these people, but he hasn't thought about how it's gonna work. He just knows, I gotta be in business with Fat Joe. I gotta have Combe Chantrelle, you know, on the Loud Payroll. I gotta have Maddie C. I gotta be in business with Scooter Braun. He was amazing at identifying talent, finding the right people, And by then, I learned that that was his greatest skill, greatest attribute as an executive, as a talent finder. It wasn't so much his musical ear, although he loves music and he has a good ear, it was his ear and instinct for people.
7: We used to call him Rain Man. He picked those artists, Steve did. In that way, man, he had a run that, in my humble opinion, is as great as anybody, anyone in the business. His run is incredible. We had so many creatives in the building that we needed a person like Rich, and um, and at the same time, like these are two two damn near best friends that grew up together in Merrick, Long Island, and since childhood, it's like you know me starting a company and you know going to get one of my day ones and being like, "Yo, bro, just come aboard and let's just have fun with this." Rich was the glue. He's incredible. How he kept it together the way he did, when you look back, he was extremely responsible and he was devil's advocate. You know, Steve was clever to to know to bring Rich there and and to have him there. We couldn't have done it without him, could not have done it without Rich.
8: The special thing about Loud Records, I would have to say, is that they took chances on artists that other labels wouldn't. You know, Mobb Deep wasn't a safe bet, you know what I'm saying? I'm sure Wu-Tang wasn't a safe bet, but they took chances. For that, they'll forever be remembered. I don't even know what hip-hop would be without a Loud Records.
5: I learned a lot. I learned how you have to empower people. You have to teach people. You have to be honest with people. I enjoyed that part of my job the most, and I really learned a lot at Loud. I think we had a lot of young people that never had jobs before, that never worked, in nobody ever worked in an environment like Loud, myself included, but I think it was a super unique thing, and I think most people will look back and say that was the best time of my life. That was the best job I ever had.
4: Nobody had experience, including me and Rich. Rich might have had more experience. I might have grew up in the music business, but we never had a company. Yeah, I had a marketing company. We didn't have a record company. And we made our own rules. Rich, I I couldn't have asked for a better partner. He understood me like when I had, because of my dyslexia or whatever, and just when words that I couldn't get out or couldn't pronounce, like he read my mind. And if he didn't understand it or disagreed with it, he would still get the ball over the finish line. Maddie, Free, and, Sha- and Sean C., they kept it as th- authentic and as real as possible. Mojo and my brother Jonathan, they were the best promotion duo to me in the history of the music business. We just focused on everybody's strength, and we really became a family. We would be there for everybody. Not just me and Rich, but the whole unit. From the receptionist to a security guy to, to Maddie, to Free, to Mojo, to John. you know, it was like, it really was a family and I think that's what made us so special.
2: From the Wu-Tang revolution to Mob Deep's unrelentingly rugged anthems to Big Pun's brutal lyricism and pop appeal, Loud shaped the sound of hip-hop in the 90s. And all that art only exists in the world as it does due to the confluence of voices and personalities that made Loud. Each and every member of the staff brought a unique perspective and talent that contributed to gifting us the public with those magical moments. Ultimately, the inspired chaos that generated loud success may also have led to their undoing, but it's clear that each team member enjoys a pride in their contribution to the culture, and maybe more so, a gratitude for the many lessons learned along the way. And we, the audience, share in that gratitude for music that I say without hyperbole, changed lives and changed the world. Hip-hop would not be where it is today if Steve Rich and the rest of the team had not turned up the volume and made it loud. If you've enjoyed this episode, please don't hesitate to like, comment, DM, or tell a friend to tell a friend about Idea Generation and the All Angles Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Will Packer, executive produced by John Valachek and Helena Ox. Original music by Valentin Fritz. Edit and sound mix by Nonsensible Production. And hosted by me, Idea Generation founder, Noah Callahan-Bever. Idea Generation's All Angles is a Will Packer Media podcast.